Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavritu Yerdin Azgad. Our daf of the day, Mesachet Shabbat, Kuf Lama Gimel, 133. I want to begin with a piece that kind of continues the discussion that we've had thus far in terms of interpretation and how we get to the conclusions that we get to, and also ties some of what we discussed back into the principles of Shabbat. And then we're going to jump from there to the new Mishnah um, on our daf. So let's let's dive right in. The Gemara asks as follows. We were talking about Sarat, right? As you recall, we're talking about the case of the person who contracts Sarat, and therefore, you know, the question is, can such a person do the Avoda? The answer is no. Does do issues of Sarat contravene Shabbat? Well, yes, possibly, right? So then the Gemara comes and says, What do I need a Pasuk to teach me? What do I need a biblical verse to teach me what the situation is for Sarat, whether it's going to be, you know, taking care of, of uh, what's the word, overriding Shabbat? The Gemara continues, The very phenomenon of getting Sarat is against the person's will, right? It's not something that you intend to do. You don't want Sarat. You certainly can't. And you can't ask for it. Right? It doesn't work that way. We know that something that is not intended to begin with is um, is mutar, right? Like this is the kind of situation where I would say mutar in this context doesn't always mean that you should, uh, or let me say carefully here, it never means that you can set out to do it, right? Because by definition means that you are not setting out to do it. You don't have intent for it. So I think of it as like, you know, you come out of the bathroom in the middle of the night and you turn off the light. And you had no intent for it whatsoever. So the act that you did, you're not going to be held accountable for it because it's completely, you know, completely not within your intent to violate Shabbat and not even to do the action itself. Now we're talking about Sarat. Believe me, nobody was looking to get Sarat. It is beyond what they intend. It is not something that has, that it's not that they're forgetting that it's Shabbat, but they don't want it. So that's not something are aiming for. Amar, by we don't need that puzzle at all to teach us that Sarat will will be no issue for Shabbat, except for the case of Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda's principle, and this is throughout Shabbos, meaning it's not just in this case, it's always. He says that meaning maybe you can't get uh, punishment for it. You can't, you can't be obligated to bring a korban, but it is still asur, it is still prohibited. The Rav Amar Rabbi Shimon Rava adds to Abaye, and he says, even you want to say the opinion of Rabbi Shimon, right? So here we have two generations of Marayim, Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Huda, who are the previous generation, Abaye and Rava, who are the subsequent generation. The latter ones are speaking about the, the positions of the former ones. Uh, Tanayim, the former ones are Tanayim. Amar Afilu Rabbi Shimon, even if you want to say the Rabbi Shimon's opinion, what did he say? His, his big position is that is going to be a sur. When it comes to intent, what does Rabbi Shimon say? That the if you have right, this is the big case of Darshan Mekavain. You cut off the head of the chicken and you don't really want it to die. But of course it's going to die. So then you know that intent for it to not happen is irrelevant because the phenomenon that is going to take place is going to take place anyway, no matter what you do. So Rabbi Shimon's position. He says the unintentional act is, in that case, he says it would be permitted. Didn't Abai know about Rabbi Shimon's 
position that when you have something that's completely unintentional, you know, what are you going to do? It ends up being mutar. We have a statement that Abai and Rabba sit together. We know that both of them agreed. They knew about Rabbi Shimon. So why doesn't Abai talk about Rabbi Shimon to begin with? Why does he say only for the position of Rabbi Yehuda? So the Gemara concludes that that Rava's position about Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Shimon's position about Psikresh Gloriamut, that, that they are in agreement, Rava and Abaye, the Gemara says, As soon as Abaye heard this point from Rava, then he agreed with him. So elsewhere we have a statement that they agreed, but it's not that they agreed independently. It's that Abaye bought the position of of, a, of Rava, that it's not just Rabbi Huda, but also Rabbi Shimon who needed the Pasuk. Now, let's just put this back into the case of what's going on. If we need that Pasuk to teach the fact that the Tzarat is not a problem for Shabbat, right, to begin with, that there's no overriding, it's not even a need of an override, right, that you're allowed to handle the Tzarat because it's not, it should be mutar, legamer, it should be mutar completely, right? But then Abai says, no, you need that verse because of Rabbi Yehuda's position. And lo and behold, also Rabbi Shimon's position. So at the end of the day, we do need all the psukim, the, the dancing around psukim and, and bringing them into the discussion that we've spent the past eight, two days doing. Yeah, I think it shows us another great example of using text uh, to really formulate opinion. And here what's interesting is, is that it's using text because you have a because Abai, who's obviously at Amora, has two Tanaitic positions, which normally are considered to be in contrast to each other, right? This famous Mahlokas between these two Tanayim, but yet they would end up on the same place when it comes to Mila and Saraz. And therefore he needs to go back to have a pasuk to show why their opinions we sort of are overridden um, in this particular situation. So it's really a nice piece of seeing how the Amorayim deal with a Masora they have from the Tanayim and use text to really prove uh, a different viewpoint or in other words, that it's a different set of circumstances. Thank you for, for helping me unpack that. Yeah, I said that in the high level way. You got into the, the meat of, you know, the meat No, of but it. that's the, 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 I'm sorry, the, the Gemara text there does all that. But again, it's keeping track of who says what, right? Again, we can, I, I can lose track of the thread. I don't want to, right? Because we have so many different opinions represented in such a very small amount of space. Okay, let's move on to the Mishnah yeah. at the end of Ahmad Aleph. Okay, so let's get on to our next. We're still going to be talking about Mila here. Osin kol Mila b'Shabbat mohalin b'Porin u'Motzitim b'Ramin Aleha isal isflanit v'Chama. Right. So you can do anything that's necessary with circumcision with Brit Mila and Shabbat. You circumcise. You can uncover the skin, right? Removing sort of that thin membrane, you know, beneath the foreskin itself. You can suck the blood from the wound. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but that's referring to sort of uh, um, and uh, which is, you know, when the mole actually places his mouth on the penis and sucks some blood out. Um, and then also that you can place a bandage on it. Um, that's what the isplanit is. Um, and the the kimon and with cumin on it as you know as as a it's like a medicinal salve. Let's say he didn't grind that cumin on erev Shabbat. He can chew it in his teeth. 
benotain, right, and put it on the circumcision. Lo taraf yain b'shemen. Let's say he didn't mix wine and oil um, on Arab Arab Shabbat and Arab Shabbat. So this was some type of mixture that they also would place on the wound to help it heal. Um, so he can put each by itself, and this makes sense because we learned about sort of that rose. Um, you know, that rose oil that was placed before and also, you know, drinking wine after bloodletting. So we know that they know that oil and wine had some medicinal uh, properties as well. And you can't make a pouch, um, you know, like whatever the special bandage was or what they would place over it. If you didn't make it before Shabbat, you're not allowed to make that on Shabbat itself. Smartut. But you can wrap a rag over it as a dressing. Im Arab Shabbat, and if you didn't prepare this on Arab Shabbat, karuch al And if he needs to bring this bandage with him, he wraps it on his finger, right? So in other words, it's doing hotza, carrying in a different way. Um, and even he can do it from one courtyard to another. So again, I think we see here that as much, you know, the Mishnah and definitely the emphasis of the parak is anything that first of all, Mila takes precedent over Shabbat and that you do what you need to do. But here, when you have something like the bandage, right, which yes, you want to do it. You want to wrap the wound up neatly and nicely. But when there's a way you can do it that's differently, that doesn't prevent you from, you know, violating Shabbat, right? Like you would just wrap the bandage sort of around your finger. um, The Mishnah is going to require you to do it that way, you know? Um, and the same thing with the cumin, right? We don't really grind on Shabbat. We're, we're not allowed to. Um, but they were saying you can chew it up, right? We won't talk about, you know, uh, chewing it up in your mouth and then placing it on there. That's a separate academic <laughs> issue. Um, but that's basically, you know, so what's interesting also about this Mishnah is it's really going through the process of Mila with us and telling us all the different steps of things that were done in order to complete Mila um, in those days. Okay, now, there's another factor when it comes to Mila that is not actually discussed in this Mishnah at all, but it is discussed, discussed in the Gemara on this Mishnah, namely the idea that there is a mitzvah of, and the mitzvah is called here, ze keli v'anvehu, keli meaning my God, v'anvehu, and I will glorify him. Now, this is a verse, right, from the book of Exodus, Sefer Shemot, Perak Vav, chapter 15, verse Bet, 2, um, and... The idea is that when we come to do mitzvot, when we come to do anything, we are doing it in the name of God to glorify God's presence on earth and so on. Now, presumably that's a factor, or the Gemara goes on to say this is not a factor in everything, but it is a factor when it comes to the idea of doing a brit milah. That the idea is that, the, that when we come to do a mitzvah, or when we come to do a mitzvah like this, it should be done in a beautiful manner. Now, of course, there's no commandment in Zekeli van Vehu, right? This is my God and I will glorify him is a statement and it's used to talk about the way we come to do our mitzvot, that we do them in a beautiful manner, that we do them to glorify God, that there is something exceptional in our attitude and in our performance of them. And it's and then we're not just going through the motions, right? And it's not just, not only is it not perfunctory, it's also not, you know, again, the idea is we're talking about surgery. Surgery is not on my high list of beautiful things. But the idea is that we're going to try to do this as aesthetically as possible. And the Gemara goes on. How do we know that that's going to apply here? We know that the idea of having noy, of having something beautiful, 
right? Na'eh, sukana'a, ulav na'eh, that the sukkah and the lulav are supposed to be beautiful and that that is part of the mitzvah itself. And then the, the, the citation here is from a brighta and it goes on, v'shofar na'eh, the shofar should be beautiful, titzit na'a, sefer Torah na'eh, v'katul bo lishmo b'diyo na'eh, you write in the name of God with, with beautiful ink, v'kulmus na'eh, with a beautiful quill, Blavlar uman, with um, nice parchment, v'korcho b'shirin and when you wrap it up, you wrap it up in a beautiful fabric. Right? All of these mitzvot have the aesthetic component to them, and that is part and parcel of what it means. Listen, you can do, you can fulfill these mitzvot in a less aesthetic manner, you know, bottom line. But the idea is that there is a component to each one of these mitzvot that is supposed to be the beautification of our experience of the mitzvah, that it comes to glorify, that it, it raises the, the honor that we give to God when we fulfill these mitzvot. Yeah, I just think it's a very nice, uh, I'm putting this away in uh, Gemara that I will definitely be quoting in a share in the future. <laughs> when you when you do that, you might want to also continue to the next line, which I've right. skipped here, which I don't want to delve into, but Abishaw Omer Va'anvehu explains why Va'anvehu, which is a tricky word, why it means to beautify and how it glorifies God. He says, Ani Vahu. That's a play on words, right? Anvehu, Ani Vahu, us, I, and God, who. So the idea is that we are trying to do as something as beautiful with the mitzvot um, in, our com- in our compliance with them as God did to us when he gave them to us. Right. And I think also his Ani Vahu really speaks to sort of the unique experience of the human-God partnership uh, in what actions we do in the world. That's why I love the, what he does with that word, Van Vehu. Very much so. Okay, now let's go. We have our Okay, most now we have the controversial moment, yes, that we've all been waiting for, which I'm sure if those of you have already learned the daf and then listened to us afterwards, know that you've gotten to. So one of the things that we mentioned in the Mishnah was this uh, piece of mutzitzin, of doing mitzitzah b'peh. And we have a very famous statement later on in the Yamud of Rav Papa, where it says, Amar Rav Papa, hai imana delo me'it sakanahu ba'avrinan lei, right? That uh, he says a craftsman, right? We're talking about the expert, the, the moel, who does not suck the blood after mitzitzah b'peh, right? sorry, after mila, is endangering the child. It's a sakana not to do it. And we ba'avirin lei, we remove him. We actually don't allow him to be a Moel anymore. Now, I think many of you who are listening are very familiar with the controversy over Mitzitzah Bepet. Um, and the source for its importance is basically from this uh, Gemara Masacha Chavez, where it's where Rav Papa basically says, you know, it's not just something that the mission is listing, but it's a danger actually not to do it. Um, the idea of doing it is essentially that by drawing the blood out, by sucking it out, and first of all, I just want to say that drawing it out on Shabbat is actually uh, doing a malacha. It's one of the lamatet malachot. It's choresh. It's threshing because you're like drawing something out the same way that you do uh, when you thresh something, right? You're, you're, you're removing the chaff, the grain from the chaff. Um, so that's one interesting piece to mention there. Um, and, um, but the idea basically is, is that you wouldn't want like a clot to form in the penis itself. And so you want to sort of draw, draw the blood out so that blood from the wound doesn't remain inside the penis itself. Um, so, you know, I think this Gemara is an excellent example, maybe one of the best examples that we're going to encounter where there is a, 
you know, sort of statement in the Gemara that from our understanding today of modern science seems to be exactly the opposite, right? Today, we would really argue, no, doing mitzvah pepet, that's actually the sakana. That is actually the danger. Thanks, Yardina. So in preparation for this discussion, I spoke with a friend of mine who is a, Mila, who is a mohel, excuse me. Um, he is the same person who did the brit milah for my son. He's also the, he also has the great schut, the merit, and I guess every mohel does this, to be the person to fulfill the mitzvah of doing the milah on their own sons, right? If, if in fact, they have a son. Um, because it's one of those things that the mitzvah is really that you're supposed to go and do the meal yourself on, on your son. And nowadays, very few people have that opportunity, right? Or the skill, really, the know-how. Um, okay. So I want to add some of what I'm going to say is going to overlap with what you're Dana, what you said and what you're about to say. Um, I just want to, cause I wanted to put it all together in this context. This is, I spoke with Dr. Daniel Kazowitz and here is some of his take um, I would have loved to have had him on the podcast itself, but the timing was not going to work that way. Okay, so he explained, he, quote, he quoted to me the Ramban about Matisa Bapeh, that it cleans the wound, right? And then as you explained, right, the idea that it's pulling blood from elsewhere, he says it's a concept, you know, everybody knows this in the context of a snake bite. He says it's also actually not such a good idea when it comes to a snake bite either, but in terms of our colloquial knowledge, that is the, the concept of pulling, drawing the blood um, to the is going to clean the wound. Um, now, at some point, they're, they're, they were aware, they came to, the, to understand that there's a potential for infection, right? That the, and that there's a possibility that it indeed came from the Mohel. There was a case in Vienna, Yardin, I think you're going to talk about where that went scientifically um, and why Matsitsa was stopped again, in this context, but there was a case in Vienna where a whole bunch of babies died and the, it, you know, linked back to the Mohel, meaning this was mo over a hundred years ago. And so at some point they did away with this Matsitsa Bapeh. Um, and he, Daniel quoted me the Chazan Ish. Now the Chazan Ish um, is, you know, another one of these um, relatively modern, right? Very, relatively recent uh, post game of very big halachic authority, also not known for his kulas, right? He's not known for his leniencies. And his rationale was he said, well, if gauze will do the same thing in terms of cleaning the wound, then perhaps you do not need to do matitsa bapet to begin with. So they, on that basis, they, they stopped doing matitsa bapet. Of course, the problem is that gauze does not do the same thing because it does not draw the blood, it does not pull it from, uh, to make sure that there's no clot, everything that Yordana said, right? It's too local, right? So then Gwaz doesn't do that. So then now you're now we're back in the need for this halachical requirement of Matita Bapet. Now, here's the issue, and it's a really important one. Um if Matita Bapet, not Matita Bapet, if Matita itself is not necessary at all, then doing the phenomenon of Matita, uh then then right, then doing the phenomenon of Matita ends up being an injury on Shabbat that would be a violation of a Doraita commandment of not harming on Shabbat, which we've talked about in the past, right? Meaning you're causing somebody to bleed. Fundamentally, that's what what's happening, right? You're drawing blood out, out, right? Being operative there. So that idea that it's not, it's not, 
well, what's the difference? Well, we could do it, you know, either way or maybe not. If mitzitzah is necessary, then it's necessary. It's part of the mitzvah and it, it overrides Shabbat, as we've been talking about. If mitzitzah is not necessary and you do it, then you have a violation of Shabbat in that capacity. So it's a tricky line to say, well, we don't need it at all, right? Rather, and again, in the modern era, um, they've um, concocted, they've come up with this, this means that seems to satisfy all the requirements, which is to use a glass tube. It's called a shvoferet, or maybe a shvoferet zuchuchit, right? A tube made of glass, literally. Um, Daniel is also a dentist, and he said that he's a patient who was 90 or so, you know, and he said that his father invented this tube. Now, I, you know, I can't verify that, but the idea that, is that, that this is a recent. Um, relatively recent solution. And the idea is that the tube touches the baby at, on the one end, and the mohel is able to do the suction through the tube to draw the blood. You know, imagine a straw, right? And in fact, it might be a more successful, you know, in terms of the health, because there's greater suction with, there's greater draw with a straw. So it seems that's going to answer all the all the questions, because because the mohel's mouth is not directly on the child, there's no concern of infection. Uh, there's one, you know, the one question of it doesn't matter that there's this barrier between the body of the mohel and the body of the baby. And the certainly the contemporary mohalim seem to think, you know, most people nowadays say this is the way to do it. You're going to do mitzitzah, you do it this way. Um, there are, yeah, some few people who will say, no, no, we want to do it like we always did. And um, we're going to trust in Hashem. And Daniel used the expression, Shomer Pataim Hashem, which means God protects the fools, right? <laughs> which is, um, you know, perhaps not the nicest way to say it, except for that he's not the one saying it. This is the rationale that the idea of you can't rely on miracles is the opposite of that, right? Shomer Pataim Hashem means Hashem will take care of those who are foolish enough to do something that you know, science and general know-how argues against. So my reaction to him was, you know, tell those babies in Vienna that Shomer Pateim Hashem, meaning it's not a, a fail-safe. You cannot use this as a halachic, um, you know, what do you, uh, beacon for living your life. Okay, so the, but he, he makes the point, and Yordan, I think you're going to come back to this later as well, that it ends up being tricky, right, to move away from any practice, right? If you say no metzitzah, then we run into this problem that anybody who does the matzitza, if you say it's unnecessary to completely, then we end up in this do right issue. So to say that it's not necessary at all is really a hard thing, he says, from his position as a mohel. To say that matzitza bapesh should be on the body of the baby with no barrier is also a hard position. He, you know, he does not do that. Again, he did the meal of my son and he, he he did matitza ba'shvoferet zuchit right. That's not quite. It it fulfills the requirement of matitza ba'pet. It does the medicinal treatment that the same thing that the matitza the drawing of the blood does, and it protects everybody concerned. Right, that there should be no contamination from the microorganisms or germs or bacteria. However, you want to characterize exactly why putting one's mouth on the site of a wound is not a good idea. There are documented cases of babies getting herpes from 
this being done to them, right? Where Moa has herpes. From an adult who didn't know. Right. From a Moa who didn't know he had herpes. Right, who did not know he had herpes um, and then gave it to a child. And I, with my pediatrician hat on, can tell you that neonatal herpes is a terrible and devastating disease. Um, so we're actually going to put up on our Facebook page. Um, and for those of you who are on our WhatsApp group, we'll post it also. I found an excellent review article um, in Jewish Action um, uh, that really goes through sort of the evolution of Mitzitzah Bepeh and when did it change. Um, you know, I will tell you personally, as I've shared before, I grew up in Maimonides and Rav Salabichik's community, and the Briskers had a very strong tradition of not doing Mitzitzah Bepeh. It was actually not allowed in our shul at all. Um, you could not do that piece of, of uh, Mila. And the way it's done today now is, you know, they, they take this like straw-like instrument um, so you're sucking the blood out, but there's no contact between the mouth of the moel um, and the baby's um, penis. Um, but the thing to know about, and again, I won't go through the entire article itself, but that essentially in the 1800s, in 1837, the chief rabbi of Vienna, Rabbi Eliezer Horowitz, um, it came to his attention that there was a number of children who became infected with some type of sore from their Brit Milah. Um, and it was believed basically that the Moel actually transmitted something to them. And that's why they all became ill and sick. And so there was another doctor there, Dr. Wertheim of Vienna, who basically said, suggested, instead of doing this oral suctioning, uh, could you squeeze the blood out using a sponge? And Rabbi Horowitz, you know, wanted to do this, but felt he needed to ask the biggest posek at that time. And he asked the Chassam Sofer. Um, and there's a letter in exchange where the Chassam Sofer basically writes back to him and says that it's okay to do. Um, and, you know, again, I'll link the article so you can read the whole quote of, of why, um, of why, uh, of why they could do that. But basically his argument is, is that it's not actually an integral part of the Mila itself. Um, and one of the proofs he gives us is that the thing the Mishnah talks about with the cumin, like nobody does that today. And it's sort of just listed as things that you did um, afterwards. And then this really became a huge issue uh, after the Chatham Sofer came out with this position, right, where form Jews you know, basically said, okay, we're not going to do Matitza Bepen anymore. And sort of, you know, a, you know, I would say sort of the more ultra Orthodox observant Jews sort of took the opposite position, which was to say, no, this is something that we have to maintain um, and that we have to do. Um, and sort of it became one of the battles between Orthodoxy and the reform movement. Um, and, um, but one thing that this article points out, which I thought was really interesting is, is that if you do read anything or hear anything about this and somebody says, oh no, Matitza Bapet is halacha lamosha misinai, right? Which is what we talked about on yesterday's podcast. Um, the author here makes note of note, uh, saying that linking Matitza Bapet as one of the halacha lamosha misinai is not anything we see till the 19th century. And I think it's interesting, those of you, you know, who are now really learning the daf, it's sort of, I think it would have been noted in the Gemara, the pages of the Gemara itself, if it was considered to be a halacha l'moshe misinai. So um, I, I'm, I don't have all the answers to this controversy, um, but I do recommend that everybody read this great article that I found in Jewish Action, which I think just gives a very good historical um, overview of the issues and how this came about and why the Chatham Sofer uh, reversed this position and said that Matitza Bapet was not necessary to do. Um, and again, but I think this to me would be a classic Gemara where you have an Amora who states something that says it's a sakana, right? That it's actually dangerous to the baby. And again, that our modern day 
understanding of medicine would be completely opposite to that. Um, again, as I, I would just, I would before, add, just add something here, which is that the Chatham Sofer, Moshe Sofer, was not known for his leniencies in anything, right? So the idea that, you know, we've talked before about when you're going to be math machmir for pikuach nefesh we're going to be paying attention to somebody's health as opposed to the like you know in addition to being a factor of we simply know more about how the science and the medicine works nowadays in terms of as i said in terms of bacteria and so on then then what we have here with the chatam sofer would be in a different era would have been radical we would have assumed that he would have said something much more stringent and instead, he says, you don't need to do this, right? And I would say that's his, he's actually being stringent to the health of the child. That's not radical. Right, exactly. I think that's also a very important point is to put the Khatam Sofer in a particular context um, as well. So, you know, we definitely want to hear from learners what you think of this, Gamara. This is like the source for this controversy. Um, and I think it's just always interesting when we go through the DAF and there are controversial topics in Halakha, where we see like the real source of where it, com- where it comes from in the Talmud itself. I would note also that when we call it a controversy, it is one thing that to say that the Metzitzvah is controversial. It is a controversial practice. But part of the reason it's a controversial practice is because some people are very adamant that this should be done in the way that it was done in days of yore. And you're, what you're hearing from us is not a balanced approach, right? Because we're coming down heavily on the side of not doing Metzitzah Pepet in the way that it was done in the days of yore because, because of exactly this, because we know, again, we have different knowledge than, than they did in the time of the Gemara. Uh, it's a complicated issue, though, to divest of the tradition that happened in the past. And it's kind of, you know, much, much bigger shoulders than ours. If we're talking about the Chatham Sofer, we're talking about the Brisker tradition. You know, these, these are um, very serious, halakhically oriented people who have said this is not the way to do it. Um, but there are obviously people who disagree today. So, you know, take, take that, you know, under advisement as, as now and again, you'll see an article about it in the paper um, because it gets a lot of attention. Yes, and still very controversial, but I think it's great to see the original source here. So that's our DAP for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbanit Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Uh, let us know what you thought about today's DAP. We really would love to hear from our learners on the Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.